Episode 42, Tapering. Welcome to the Oxidative Potential Podcast, where we discuss all things sports science and performance. I'm your host, Matthew DeRoche, and with me is my fellow co-host, Phil Batterson. Enjoy. Good day, folks. In today's episode, Phil and I discuss all things tapering. So we talk about the big pillars of tapering and what kind of factors you want to be manipulating. How much do these factors affect your performance on race day? And how much does a essentially a perfect taper actually yield you in terms of percentages and, and performance? So we dig into all the little nitty-gritty things to take in consideration. What types of tapers are appropriate for what type of individual and in their realm of, of athletics, whether that's ultra marathon running, cycling kind of stuff. We get into all the, the specifics surrounding like that stuff and what are the things that you want to pay attention to um, when you're doing those sports. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, if you want to contact Phil or I for anything podcast related or, or coaching consultations, inquiries, uh, you can hit us up on Instagram. Phil is at critical02. I'm at Resilience HPC. You can find all that stuff in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Okay, folks, tapering is going to be the subject. This is something I've wanted to do for a while. I mean, Phil thought it'd be like, hey, this is perfect. We can do a little mini episode on tapering. There's a ton of literature surrounding tapering, especially difference in tapering for a power lifter versus tapering for an endurance sport versus team sports, all these different things. There's a bunch of nuances in tapering, but we wanted to get in and get into some of the details that will help folks understand like, hey, how much am I going to actually gain from tapering? in terms of percentage improvement and performance compared to no taper at all or just stop training, all these different things. And the godfather in this research is Inigo Majika. He's got a book that I have on tapering and it's, it's a great book. It's a little bit expensive, but he's essentially done a lot of the real solid reviews and, and literature surrounding tapering. But basically, we're just going to review the big kind of seminal review that he put out. Let's just talk about first and foremost, how much performance gain do you get from tapering? I thought there was a lot more. Like, I'm sure you felt <laughs> the same way, Phil. Like, I'm sure like when you heard about tapering and all these different complexities surrounding tapering, you probably felt like, oh man, I must be getting like 20%. What is it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and just like, like the whole idea, right? Is like pretty much everybody, everybody tapers and especially mm. in endurance sports i mean strength sports as well i'm, I'm just less mm. involved with strength sports but like every every year during cross country track all that sort of stuff it'd be like all right we're gonna build throughout the summer then we're gonna hit it pretty hard and then like before regionals and before conference and states and the nationals we're going to we're gonna taper hard because that's gonna that's really gonna sharpen you and get you get you there and so yeah, so I was always like, oh yeah, this whole tapering bit, this must really have a lot of very sound science to, to tell us like, we're going to get like 10, 15, 20% increases in performance, all that sort of stuff. And it really doesn't do that much. No. <laughs> maximum like you might see like 6% performance improvement from tapering compared to no tapering at all. But generally on average, it's sitting around 3%. Yeah. So if you hit everything perfect on your taper, and I mean, obviously, this is going to depend very much on like, are you overtrained? Are you overreached? Are you an ultra marathon runner? Are you a power lifter? Are you a 5k runner? Right. All these things are going to depend. But if you're like, reasonably trained, you're reasonably fit, and 
you have reasonable training volume, you're probably going to see through a perfect taper somewhere around 3% improvement. Yeah. And, um, and so let's, let's clarify. So I think in a previous episode, 3% is a meaningful difference. Like say for instance, yes. like a 3% increase in perform or decrease in performance in a 3000 meter could be 22 seconds. Yeah. So that is definitely a meaningful difference. It's just yes. not percentage wise, like as much as I would have initially expected. Yes. Yeah, for example, like that 3%, if we're talking 3%, or let's just say, let's talk about like 10%, right? 10% when you're lifting a powerlifting total of 2,000 pounds yeah. is way different than if you're hitting 10% at a powerlifting total of 700. Yeah. <laughs> it's two different things. And the same with like 10% whenever you're sprinting 100 meters it's very different than if you see 10% in an ultra marathon race. Mm -hmm. They're two different things, especially you these some of these longer races. So take everything into consideration when we're talking about percentages. And these things are going to change, obviously, dependent on sport, like we said, all these different factors. Right. But yeah. So if that's all you're looking for, hope you enjoyed the episode. See you <laughs> later. 3% yeah. is all you're going to get. Let's now talk about what are the factors that we're going to try and manipulate when we're talking about tapering. So first and foremost, intensity, right? Mm -hmm. A second being volume, third being frequency. So how many times you're training in the week, like how many sessions? And then fourth is like the pattern of the taper. Is it a linear taper or is it an exponential kind of taper? So like a linear taper or a step taper. So linear is just like you're decreasing by the same amount every day until the race, right? Mm -hmm. Or close to the race. Whereas an exponential is like, it's a percentage, like, so 10% of this, and then an extra 10% of that, 10% of that. So it's like, it's going to be exponential, right? Because 10% of like 200 miles is different than 10% of hundred miles. Mm -hmm. So that's exponentially. And then like a step taper is just like, you're reducing like all your work instantaneously. Yeah. You know what I mean? By so it's like just like 50%. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like half and then like maybe a quarter. So those are the different patterns. Now let's just talk about effect size first, actually. So effect size, we're talking about like 0.1 is like a small correlation, right? Um, so we're talking about like Pearson's coefficient. So like 0.1 is a small correlation. 0.3 is a medium correlation. 0.5. Point five. Oh, I was far. Point five. <laughs> your your, your, Cana your Canadian was 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 shining through there. <laughs> yeah, it's just brutal accent. And then, <laughs> oh, dude, I don't. It's funny. Like if people heard the an accent that I grew up with after I moved to to Prince Edward Island, they would not believe me. They just wouldn't believe us. Yeah. Like I'm gonna do it someday just to give people a good laugh. But and one is the perfect correlation. So. That's a given an understanding of like how much these things matter. So when we're talking about intensity, we're seeing a 0.3 effect size. Volume, we're seeing 0.7, right? So this is like, this is mm. the most robust one, right? That we're trying to manipulate, obviously. Yeah. Frequency is 0.35 and pattern taper is just like all over the place, just depending some of the other factors that we can talk about too is duration of taper, right? So is it two weeks versus one to four weeks? Your training load uh, before the, the taper is another one. Also, like where are kind of the recovery modalities that you're using and also nutrition and hydration and then all the other kind of 
minutia of stress travel, heat altitude, peaks in your season. How many peaks did you have? Is this your third peak? Yeah. So the really most robust one that we're going to be trying to hone in on is volume, right? Yeah. So if we're, if we're managing all these other things, they're less important if we're not really honing in on volume first and foremost. So you want to decrease your duration of, of your sessions by so much, right? By 40 to 60% is what they're saying. So if we're looking for the performance gains, that's the area that you're going to want to look for when we're talking about decreasing your total volume. Yeah, that's um, what you want to get to over the course of your taper. Exactly. Yeah. Not right. every every session. You're not if you did, sorry, I shouldn't be clear on that. So that yeah. will make sense about if you're if you're subtracting 40% of your volume or 60% of your volume every session, you're gonna be down pretty low pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. But that's exactly. what the end volume is gonna look like, right? 40 to 60% of the volume. That's a good point, Phil. Yeah, I'd be more clear on while that. also maintaining intensity. So it's, yes. it's important. You don't change your intensity. So you still have like your, your hard, fast days, your low, easy days, those sort of things, but your overall just re- volume is reduced, but the intensity of those sessions remains the same because it's, I think it's very tempting when you do a taper to just reduce everything, yeah. reduce intensity, reduce volume, reduce all that sort of stuff. Um, and just from people I've coached before and made the mistake of reducing intensity they're like well i just feel i just feel like i don't have that high-end gear going into the race that i would need for things like a sprint at the end or other things like that so Mm -hmm. maintain intensity reduce volume and hopefully gain your three to six percent yeah performance yeah so volume the big one frequency you want to keep the same frequency, right? Like you want to keep the same stimulus onto the body, the same amount, like frequency is really important for training. I think the more frequency you can get generally with anything, I think the better you're going to adapt to pretty much anything. If you're talking about keeping volume the same for most things, your body responds better depending if we're talking about strength or endurance, but for endurance, that signal, if you send that signal more mTOR is on much longer, I think that, and who even knows about mTOR, but I think with endurance, you, you gain much better if you can increase your frequency, no matter what. I think if you're giving the same volume, but you're pulsing that like three, four times a day, I know this isn't doable for most. I honestly think you will get better adaptations. You're sending the signal more times. That signal is already shutting off fairly quickly. And it's the same we know for like tendon adaptations. It's like, it doesn't take long. It's like six hours before it's back to baseline. Right. So the more frequent you can hit some of these things, I think the better, but at least keep your frequency the same. If you're looking to to gain, don't go back to like two days a week or three days a week. That's going to hamper performance. Mm-hmm. Pattern of the taper, fast decay exponential taper was considered the best out of the four types of of tapers that they looked at. So that just means like you're going to decrease your normal volume rather quickly. So your your bulk of your taper is going to be in the first five or six days out of a 14 day taper. And then the rest is just going to be like, eh, it's fairly relatively similar in volume. You're going yeah. to increase a little bit, maybe towards the, the race a little bit, just little pulses. But the majority of the taper is just going to be at that that front loaded at the beginning of the taper, and then it's just going to gradually wean off from there, yep. if at all. The duration of the taper. Now, this is a big one. I've seen people talk about four-week tapers, one-week tapers, and it really is going to depend on a bunch of different factors. But the longer the taper, the, the more loss in fitness 
you potentially could be exposed to, right? Right. Versus the, you know, shorter taper. Now you have a potential of being slightly overtrained or slightly under recovered coming into the race. So generally two weeks is considered the best and what's used on average, but anywhere from one to four weeks can work depending mm -hmm. on the state of the individual. How overtrained are you? What, what sport is it that you're tapering for? Is it an ultra marathon where your peak mileage is 200 miles? Yeah. yeah. You're probably going to want to taper a little bit longer, right? Yeah. Like the guy that just broke the record, he was doing three months of 200 mile weeks. Ooh. So you're probably going to want to tone that down a little bit before you get to your yeah. race, right? Yeah. All that um, accumulated fatigue. Yeah. But then so, on, the, on the flip side of things, if you're one of those athletes who, or it's like somebody who doesn't actually do crazy amounts of volume and other things like that. Yeah. Maybe a taper. taper that much isn't yeah isn't that necessary right like yeah. the whole idea is that you need a taper in order to have super compensation to get you back to a higher performance level but yeah. i still think there's some level of like volume and intensity thresholds that you need to be hitting to be accumulating that like high volume fatigue yeah. that would necessitate extra rest in order to actually bounce back from it so no, you're right on that. The sure. nuances of it is like, I don't have any specific numbers, but it's like, if you're, if you're not, if you're feel like you can recover and improve your performance after a one, one day break, say you you take Sundays off or something, and then you come mm -hmm. back on Monday and you're getting better performance, you probably don't need a taper. If you're under that threshold, like let's say for endurance training, I'm saying this, if you have a normal distribution of training, like you're not doing all sprint training right. or, or something like that, like repeated sprints. If you're under that threshold of like six, seven hours, even 10 hours, it's like not really going to matter much for a taper. I should say that more so for cycling or triathlon. If we're talking about straight running, 10 hours is a lot of volume for a lot of people. Yeah. But for running, let's just say like if you're under like whatever, four hours a week or under 50 miles, probably not going to have to worry too much about a taper. Yeah. So duration of the taper, just take that in mind. The training load, pre-taper training load, basically four weeks in advance, there's some thought around increasing your training load by like 20 percent so mm -hmm. you can get this nice super compensation by the time you come into your taper so this has always been my this is something that i've always done in terms of anything i've done for is i have like my either my peak week or i at least reintroduce a larger amount of volume sorry 28 days out so you actualize some of those gains on race day and you get that super compensation after that fatigue is shed yeah yeah so, yeah. so it looked like, so it looks something like about, um, six weeks before yes. you're planning on racing, you would ramp up your volume. You could do yeah. like a stair step ramp up of your volume for four weeks. Yes. Yeah. And then depending on how much volume you actually have, then you would target two weeks of kind of that exponential decay and taper where over the first yes. five days, you're reducing volume a lot. And then for yeah. the next seven to nine days, you would be maintaining 40 to 60% of what that 28 day volume was and yeah. the intensity going into your actual race. It's important for folks because if you're doing your, your, your training volume two weeks before your taper, your highest training volume, yeah, probably not the smartest, but yeah. So then you talked about enhancing recovery, um, reducing muscular fatigue. So they talked about massage and compression garments. There's no strong consensus, but you know, can benefit some athletes. And like I said, like we we're talking about sprinting and the podcast before and muscle tone and like getting that right. Like 
depending on the sport, it's going to vary. Muscle tone, I think, is much more important for explosive sports and having that proper muscle tone versus some of these like longer events. But yeah, so just monitor your muscle fatigue. And if you think you need massage or you think you need some extra tissue work to bring down that nervous system, go ahead and do it. It doesn't work for everyone. It's very dependent on everyone's biases, I think, and a lot of things surrounding it. But yeah, so anything also to reduce sympathetic tone is going to be a benefit. So Mm -hmm. if you can get your sleep dialed in, obviously it's going to be the most important because it's literally like a performance enhancing drug. Mm -hmm. If you want to like get the gains that you're seeing with all this other stuff, sleep is like probably the first place to look. Yeah. Because that's your recovery right there. That's that's what I always tell people is like, if you're, if you're not maximizing sleep nutrition and then your, your training plan, then like, like the rest of the stuff doesn't, doesn't really matter because you have so much room for performance gain by getting adequate, properly hydrating and fueling yourself that Mm -hmm. like the like the 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 47 supplements that you spend a thousand dollars a month on are going to equate to about like a fraction of a percent whereas like if you go from four hours of sleep a night to adequate amount of sleep per per night there's going to be a much larger benefit yes 110 hands down and everyone probably sounds like a broken record talking about sleep but really the importance of it can't be stressed enough like I hate talking about it because it's just one of those things that goes in one ear and out the other for a lot of people, <laughs> yeah. right? You're like, fuck sakes, come on, just hear what I'm saying. Right. Just do it. I swear to God. But like, yeah, another thing you mentioned was like your training plan, like managing your training load versus diving into the weeds of training distribution and like training intensities on certain days. Your total training load is first and 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 foremost, most important for like over all those other training variables. Like, yeah pay attention to the actual load you're placing on your body because everyone's going to be different depending on your your fiber typology depending on your your stress levels all these things are going to equate differently when we're talking about training load so dialing in the appropriate amount of training load over all those other threshold variables around all those other and those things have something to do with it but i'm saying like understand the total load first then talking about nutrition and hydration Obviously, these are super important. Understanding that like, yeah, carbohydrate loading is a thing like having topped up glycogen stores, but you can't 100% glycogen in the muscle is 100%. Like you can't get 110% in the muscle. You can't get 120% in the liver. You can only get 100%. So if your glycogen stores are topped up, they're topped up. So don't. So so just calculating that, like the recommendation is like carbohydrate loading before pre-competition period to optimize muscle glycogen is like 10 to 12 grams per kilogram per day over 36 to 48 hours prior to the race. And I just calculated that that's 750 grams of carbohydrates. Yes. For me. Yeah. That's, that's it. Uh, that's like, that's so much. Yeah. And th- this is the thing is like 3000 calories I, worth this, of carbohydrates. How much rice yeah. is that? This, this, this topic is so dependent because first of all, it depends how depleted are you? Like how much deplete, how much carbohydrate depletion are you going into in your training? Like this is, this is a topic where everyone talks about carbohydrate loading with runners. And it's like a lot of runners are shoving down four or five gels when they're running. You know what I mean? 
And some of them are like post-run, pre-run. It's like, how carbohydrate depleted are you in the state that you're normally at? Um, And when you're ingesting your carbohydrates is going to make a big difference in how how you're fueling your glycogen stores. Like the best way to... The best way to fuel muscle glycogen is to ingest it while you're moving at a, like a very low level of activity. So if you're like doing house chores and like doing stuff around the house and like eating carbohydrates, that is by far the best way to fuel up your glycogen source. Sitting on a couch, just dumping back carbohydrates. You're not going to get the full benefit of, of topping up your glycogen stores. And the Um, reason, the reason for that is because during low level contractions, like walking, easy biking, gardening, doing whatever you are doing, you, mm -hmm. you increase the blood flow to your muscles. That's a huge Mm -hmm. one without increased blood flow to your muscles. You can't put any carbohydrates there. Also you upregulate insulin independent carbohydrate transport into the muscle itself. Yeah. So, so in these ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that's something that I always think about is like, I I have a tendency not to eat enough carbohydrate throughout the, throughout the day. So Mm -hmm. something that I try to do, especially after hard workouts is during my cool down, I'll have my, like my Gatorade or something with carbohydrate and protein mix. And I'll drink that during a 30 minute cool down. And that should help to facilitate a, the blood flow, but b maintaining that upregulation of, of increased glucose uptake into the muscle. So it's not going elsewhere essentially. No, that's Um, very good. Very good point for people. Like just, yeah, do your best and not just slouch around before your, your competition, like low level physical activity is going to help you recover the blood flow. You need blood flow to help recovery and this is why i'm big on the whole even for strength athletes doing some of this low level activity some of this low level aerobic exercise yeah hydration avoid three percent loss and and total body water which is important i think most people understand how much hydration affects performance there's literally if there's more conclusive studies on any topic out there please find it because there's hundreds of papers i don't know why people keep feeling the need to do research on like dehydration and performance but like i don't know why there's so many papers on it but uh, there's there's it's very clear and this is why i'm like really really trying to educate people especially in fighting surrounding weight cutting and oh yeah it's like cardiovascular response it's like all that like high intensity and threshold training that you're doing in your in your training you basically like just threw all that out the window because you just dehydrated yourself to a severe degree 10 percent body weight 24 hours before then you're not yeah. going to fully rehydrate as much ivs as you take your brain fluid, are you, spinal fluid are you allowed yeah. to use an iv during like pre-mma fight to rehydrate UFC or not, because you can, you can potentially mask certain PDs whenever you introduce the exogenous estrogens that come from the plastics in the IV. Plastics is a whole rabbit hole to get into like microplastics and xenoestrogens and stuff um, for people. That's, that's an interesting topic, but yeah. So don't generally, but in some of these lower level competitions, like outside the UFC, you, you, most people do IVs, like I've done IVs, but with it's funny because people actually don't know there's and I found research on this was if we're talking about 24 hours there's no difference between oral hydration and IV hydration 
Hmm. So a lot of people think they're getting a performance and benefit of doing IVs and they're like, Oh yeah, I got four IVs for my thing. It's like, yeah, it doesn't make a difference. 24 hours. I had arguments yeah. actually with my partner and one of my friends about this, cause they're both nurses and we had this, this massive argument and they were arguing like, there's no way IV hydrates you better. And I'm like, no, 24 hours. It doesn't matter. But they kept missing the fact that I was saying 24 hours. Right, right, right. And 24 hours is the key or yeah. hydration. IV is the same. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for folks out there trying to gain a benefit with IVs, if it's 24 hours, it's not going to yeah. make a difference. But um, well, and, yeah. and for endurance sports, you definitely shouldn't need to have an IV day before your race. Like you're, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. You're in trouble if you're, yes. if you're relying on an IV to hydrate you before yeah. your race. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think though, I think that's a, those are all really good points because it's like, I think a lot of endurance athletes, I mean, including myself are a little bit concerned with say too much weight gain, right? Oh, if I reduce my, if I reduce my activity, I'm going to gain weight. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is it's like, first of all, I would just stay away from the scale. If, if I was an endurance athlete tapering for something like this, because Really what's going to happen is you should get super compensation of carbohydrates. It's like if you're in a carbohydrate depleted thing and you should be more hydrated. So you're going to get more retention of body water, but that retention of body water is going to be beneficial retention, like with creatine, right? As opposed to, you know, if you, if you just like all of a sudden decided to eat a bunch of super, super salty foods or something like that, you got like edema or bloat or whatever it is. Um, Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be beneficial water retention versus non and you're not gaining fat like yep. you got your body's got protective mechanisms for gaining too much fat too quickly and and you're it's not something you should be concerned about yeah yeah so. i think that's pretty good i mean like particular aspects surrounding we don't really need to get into that i think most people can understand like jet lag get out and put your feet on grass bare feet we had yeah. this big argument. There was this, I did this super soldier competition years ago. Like they picked three people from every country and you go compete in these events, which is like obstacle course racing, which is like, it's a system track. So you do like 800 meters and have all these different obstacles you have to yeah. race around. Um, you do aquatic obstacle, you do orienteering, you do shooting. We do essentially like T triple, like you do a medical. So like you have to solve these different problems, medical evacuations, a hmm. bunch of different stuff. And this guy that was coaching us, he was kind of like, he was a professional SISM kind of guy where he would race professionally doing this stuff. Like every year that was his job along with training folks. So he was one of the trainers for our team that year. And he was like, take your boots off and go walk on the grass. And this was back in 2012. And we're like, fuck. And like, there's a no, huge dude, argument. That's stupid. Like, <laughs> yes, we're all like arguing. Like, the boys are tired. Just let them go to sleep. Tell them to fucking take their boots off and go on the grass. Like, what are you crazy and all this stuff? And like, yeah. come to come to 2015, 16, 17, starting to read the research. And I'm like, okay, this is a very nuanced conversation. I'm not going to get into earthing right now. Right. Um, there's, there's there's a lot of nuance there, right? So we're not going to get into that, but actually taking your shoes off and connecting to the ground barefoot actually does have something to do with circadian rhythm mm-hmm. and resetting your clock and actually is is something that you can use as they call them right so light meal timing mm-hmm. and thermal temperature are big three 
So manipulating those appropriately to where you're going to be traveling beforehand is really important, but you can easily fuck it up. So take the time. If you're going to actually try and do that, and this is an important thing for you, take the time to understand how to manipulate those. I'm not going to get into that here, but altitude, heat, acclimatization, get your stuff together for that. Right. And yeah, other than that, nothing else we really need to get into. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a, that's a really good overview. If you, if you haven't really honed in on your tapering and stuff, just, just know what works for some people may not work for others. What works during one set session of the season may not work later in the season. So it's all about trying to figure out, like this gives you like guidance on what you could do. Tapering is such a, an individualized thing that you got to try different things. Yeah. Just because we say, oh, increase your your volume for for 28 days before your two-week taper and then reduce your volume by down to 40 to 60%. You know, I definitely know people who do not do well with that. And again, it's it's every like it helps to have a coach walk you through this stuff because I think a lot of people have a perception of themselves that is a little bit kind of like blown out of proportion. It's a lot harder to make decisions for yourself than it is for a coach to make objective decisions with you. So maybe in that, in that, from that perspective, like talk to a coach, work out something, try to have a good approach for it. But yeah, other than that, if, if you think you're recovering well enough, like from all this stuff, then maybe tapering isn't, maybe you don't really need a taper try it. Like you see going to one race with no taper, going to another race with a, you know, a, a solid taper and see how your performance is, see how you feel, all of those sort of things. So if you want to find Phil, he's at critical O2 on Instagram, hit him yep. up, posts lots of great content out there. I'm at resilience HPC on Instagram. And I don't really post a lot of great content. I post, I try and post clips of podcasts and the yeah, odd no, video. That, I that is great to. content. That is great. Content. Yeah. And then YouTube channel is Oxidative Potential Podcast for the YouTube. You can find podcast video formats there and also mm-hmm. some videos I, I do on specific things like heart rate monitors, shoes, whatever. So yeah, folks, hit us up if you like the podcast. I'll tell your tell your friends, share it around, do yep. whatever. Leave a review even. That would be amazing. Someone left a review. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Unless it's a bad review. I'd be partially upset, (laughs) but I would still appreciate the feedback. So regardless, yeah. So we'll catch you next time. Yeah. Later, guys.